Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, We are in the middle of a series uh, on the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to take us so long to get through it that we thought it might be good for us to consider within that series a number of mini-series. And so we are, for the next few months through the summer, going to be looking at some of the stories and kind of the the core part of the the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, looking at um, what it means for us to become disciples of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to go back to Matthew 8, which where we read last week, and pick up one little story there, and then come into Matthew chapter 9 and read verses 1 through 13. Um, You'll see it printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. There are a few Bibles there for you if you'd like to do that. Let's read together, beginning in Matthew 18, verses 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, which we read just a minute ago. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, chapter 9. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city, Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, It's interesting, the scribes are always talking to themselves. They never really, they never say what they think out loud. They were, they were saying to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, here's the problem with doing that. Jesus, knowing, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat or your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. We're not going to get to all of this this morning. We're going to pick it up next week because there's so much here. But I really do want us to focus on the story uh, of the paralytic there in verses 1 through 8 of Matthew chapter 9. Now, last week I said Matthew 8 and 9 are a reflection on the authority of Jesus. Uh, All these stories about Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons are grouped chronologically together, not thematically And Matthew wants us to reflect on Jesus' authority. He touches the leper and his leprosy is cured. Um, He speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey his voice. Later in Matthew chapter 8, which we didn't look at last week, he comes across a demon-possessed man and he commands the demons to go and they obey him. That's what Matthew wants us to see, that Jesus is the one who commands our total allegiance and obedience. Matthew wants us to hear his words. Remember what we said? He wants us to hear his words and put them into practice. He's beckoning us to become disciples. And remember what we said last week, uh, and I I think it was a Kurt thing, but actually it's underneath those books right there. She's looking for my cell phone, which I just got a text, and I usually turn it off. So I'm embarrassed, but anyway. 
if we take care of that, I can get back to thinking about what I need to be thinking about. Uh, Jesus is not safe, but he's good. That's the point I was trying to make. That as we wrestle through his authority, Jesus is not safe, but he is good. And I, I think I was naive to assume that it was that simple. But even conversations that I had just after the service, you know, I came to realize that it, that, that it was really hard to believe that. I mean, here you have Jesus using his authority to heal the sick and to calm storms and to do all sorts of good things for people. And yet the reality is, is we live in a world where people still die every day, where there's sadness and pain and suffering and an overwhelming sense of loss. And to speak into that and to say Jesus has all authority and power and that he's good is a huge statement of faith. Because if that's true, then why are things still the way they are? I mean, why do bad things happen to good people all the time? Why is there cancer? And so this story, I'm so thankful for this story in Matthew chapter 9 about the paralytic, because I really think it begins to help us answer some of those questions. So this morning, three things this story helps us see, and you'll see them there in your outline. Three things, a bigger story, that there's a bigger story, there's a deeper need, and there's a greater mission. Those are just the three things I want to talk about this morning. The bigger story, the deeper need, and the greater mission. Okay, let's do that together. Let's walk through this as we look at this story about this paralytic that was brought to Jesus. So... A bigger story. Okay. The first thing I want us to see is that the story helps us see that there's a story behind all of our personal stories. Who is this man? Why is he paralyzed? What's his name? Does he have a wife and kids? I mean, who takes care of him? I mean, there's so many details. But we have to make sense of all of those details in the details of our lives in light of this larger or bigger story that is being told, because it's in understanding that story that we get answers to the hard questions that we want to answer, okay? Uh, I don't know if you saw the movie that was out recently, Avatar, which has become the most popular or the most biggest grossing film of all time, right, worldwide. It's interesting, I was reading a number of months ago, and I picked it up again this week. I don't know if you... If you are aware of this, but CNN ran a story after the movie had been in theaters for a while that was entitled Post-Avatar Depression. Anybody familiar with this? Um, It seems there was a rash of people who went to see the movie and experienced literally severe depression and even suicidal thoughts in the days following seeing the movie. Uh, There really was... Uh, There really was something very, I saw it, there really was something very beautiful about the world the movie portrayed called Pandora where, you know, the kind of the native people of the planet live together in harmony with one another in the creation. And when when people went to see the movie, what happened was it stirred something in them, a longing in them that led to depression. Now, one, one person even wrote into CNN, and here was the way he described it. This guy's from Sweden. So he says, when I woke up this morning after watching Avatar, the world seemed gray. It seemed like my whole life, everything I've done and worked for, lost its meaning. I live in a dying world. Now, here's my, let me give you my interpretation of this, okay? The movie was a picture of Eden. I mean, it was a picture of Eden. Granted, granted, a somewhat weird New Age interpretation, but still Eden. And what happened was, is that, whether it was the 3D glasses that people wore, I don't know, all the, you know, psychosomatic... Thanks, but what happened, I believe, is that it awakened a powerful homesickness in people for Eden. The world is gray compared to what once was and what is coming again. That's true. 
I mean, we do live in a dying world where death and sickness and sorrow still reign, but the message of the Bible is there's a new world on the way. And what was really missing, I think, from the movie is a sense of what is really wrong with the world. Uh, We all know that the world has come unhinged, but why? And, And the movie doesn't really answer the question why. Why are things the way they are? And so I think it just left people despairing. There was no real diagnosis of the problem, so there was no real hope for a solution. But the Bible offers us a hope. I mean, unlike that movie, all of the long and, and I think, I don't know if you can feel the longing, just in even Jonathan's prayers and some of the things that we've been wrestling through this week. The, the Bible gives us a great answer to some of the longing, and it just begins. So I just want to tell the story. And it begins with this statement that we believe that the world we live in was created. We don't believe that life is the product of a random series of events or a Darwinian evolutionary process. We believe it is the product of the will of a creator who created with specific goals and according to a specific design. And when he created, it was good. If you remember the story in Genesis, after every day, God would create, he would look at what he created, and then he would make a pronouncement. He would say, man, that's really, really good. And when he was finished, the Bible says, the creation was perfect. It was a paradise. I mean, it literally, it was Eden. And in Genesis, Moses portrays it as a garden full of rivers and fruit trees and animals where, and this is my favorite part, and Mary and Lane Hart and I joke about this, where the man and the woman, you know, we were made, we were made to be naked people running around in a garden talking with God face to face. Right? I mean, the man and the woman were there, they were naked, I'm not sure what that's all about, but they had no shame, and God, it says, would come and would walk with them and would talk with them. The man and the woman experienced perfect emotional and psychological, get this, and even hormonal harmony. Wouldn't that be great? They were physically, see, by the way, you didn't laugh. I knew people were going to laugh right there when I thought that. They were physically and emotionally whole. There was no death. There was no disease. They also experienced perfect relational harmony. In their relationship with one another and even in their relationship with the creation, there was no hatred or envy or jealousy. There was no war. There weren't even weeds. The best of all was that they lived in perfect harmony with their creator. They talked to him face to face and took walks with him in the cool of the day. I mean, can you imagine that? God created humanity for immortality. We were meant to go on living like this forever and ever and ever. An ever-increasing experience of delight in God and an ever-increasing desire to live in love and worship and service to him. But what we learn from Genesis, if you know the story is that the first man and the first woman were not content to serve. They wanted to be served. They were not content to worship. They wanted to be worshipped. Somehow, we're told, evil infiltrated the paradise and seduced them to rebellion. And by that rebellion, they plunged all of their posterity and even the creation into utter ruin. The Bible's very clear. And we read it in Romans 5 for our assurance of pardon. So you can look back there if you want to. But the Bible is very clear. We all bear the guilt of Adam's sin. He acted as what theologians call our federal head. In other words, it just means that had you and I been there, we would have acted the same way he did. And for that reason, we bear his guilt. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. 
But that's only part of the story, because what Paul says in Romans 5 is that when sin came into the world, you'll see that, death came with it. In other words, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, things immediately began to unravel. They felt shame and tried to cover their nakedness, we're told. In other words, they were emotionally and psychologically fractured. When God called their name, they hid. They were, now they were fractured. Their relationship with him was fractured. They were alienated from him. When, they, when he confronted them, my favorite part of the story in Genesis 3, they start to point fingers and blame shift. You know, and so their relationship with one another is fractured, and we're told that thorns and weeds begin to grow. That even the creation begins to unravel. Now, the Bible says this is why we die. This is Christianity's answer for why there's cancer and sickness and disease. It's because of human sin and selfishness. We're not just guilty, we're ruined. Ruined. We're living under a curse. We're literally, literally, we're falling to pieces. And it's our fault. It's our doing. I mean, this is why, get this, there's hurricanes and tsunamis and droughts. Because the creation, we were made to be stewards of the creation, the images of God. And when we fell and when we rebelled, the creation followed along after us. And the creation is in rebellion too. But here's what the scripture would teach us. God is not to blame for these things. We are. I mean, it's so easy. And it's so easy for me to watch a good friend. Uh, battle, you know, I've lost my mother to cancer. I've lost an aunt to cancer. I've lost an uncle to cancer. My whole family has been ravaged by that terrible disease. And I found it so easy to look at that and to get mad at God and to blame him and raise my fist to the sky and say, this is your fault. But you see, the scripture won't let us off the hook because what we should do when we see suffering unfolding around us, what we should do is we should begin to weep like my wife did in the kitchen last night, weep over our sin and repent and beg him to come and save us because we begin to realize it's not his fault. It's my fault. He's not to blame. We're to blame. The world is no longer a reflection of what it's like when he's king. Now the world is a reflection of what it's like when I insist on being king. Now what Matthew's been reminding us is that God was not content to leave things as they are. That he sent his son into the world on a rescue mission to redeem his people and the entire creation from the curse and guilt of sin. So here's, here's where the story resolves. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. The great work of restoration is underway, and Jesus begins, we see here in Matthew 8 and 9, to heal the sick and cast out demons and even subdue the creation. He stands and he speaks to the wind and the waves and says, be still, and they're still, because that's his mission. And he's the one that's come to heal our emotional and psychological and even hormonal dysfunctions. He's the one who's come to heal broken relationships. He's the one who's come, the scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, to reconcile all things to the Father through the sacrifice of his blood. That's the story behind all of our personal stories. That's the story. That's the bigger story. And it makes sense of what happens in Matthew chapter 9. Because it helps us see that there's a deeper need. So let's go on to that. You see, they bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. Look there in verses 1 and 2. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, do, you, do, you, do you see how strange a statement that is? I mean, unless you understand all that I've said, that's just strange. Because surely, help me, 
surely these guys, his friends, were not bringing him so Jesus could forgive him. They wanted him to walk. I mean, they probably heard all about Jesus, you know, and what he'd been doing, and they wanted Jesus to heal him. And so they come, and they bring a paralyzed man to him and set him down before him, and the first thing Jesus says is he says, Child, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't offer to make his legs work. He offers to forgive his sins. And what's that about? I mean, what, what's happening there? You see, Jesus is helping this man and us understand what, real, what it really means for him to begin to save us. And so let me just ask you a question this morning. What's your greatest need? What's the greatest problem that you face? If, if we were to take prayer requests this morning, what kinds of things would people ask God to do? I mean, obviously, there are people who are sick, and we'd ask God to heal them. There are people who have lost jobs. We'd ask him to provide for them. I mean, these are the kinds of things I pray for. I find that most of, 99% of my praying has to do with circumstance change in people's lives. Uh, I pray that God will remove all suffering from them. I pray that, you know, he'll make things as nice and easy and safe and simple as he can be. Uh, and is it good for pray, pr- to pray for things like that? Of course. But what Jesus is trying to help this man understand is there's a deeper need that we often don't see. There's a deeper need. And you see, the truth is a lot of people come to Jesus because they want their circumstances fixed. There's something in their life they're unhappy about. There's some suffering they're having to undergo that, that, that is just really hard. And, and they want to try Jesus out to see if he can help them. And if you're not a Christian or you're investigating Christianity, or you're new to Christianity, I want to say to you, be careful of that. Don't come to him um, because you think he will fix your circumstances. Because I want to just say as gently as I can, that's not his ultimate agenda. He's come to deal with your sin. He's come so that you can be made right with God. He's come to produce character in you, to give you a new heart and a new set of motivations, and a new obedience so that you can live in communion with God. Remember back at the beginning of Matthew, if you were here around Christmas time, the angel who foretold his birth went to his father and he said, you will call him Jesus, and here's the reason for the name, because he's come to save his people, can you finish it? From their sins. Sin is at the root of what's wrong with the world. He's come to deal with sin. You see, that's the real problem. Our rebellious hearts, that's the real problem, sin. And I'm so tempted to think that the problem in my life is circumstantial and it never is. I, I, I'm so tempted to think it's my in-laws, right? And it's not them. Or it's the job that I hate or that I have no job and it's not. Or it's if only I could have a different house or a different set of friends or whatever. And the real problem is not any of those things. The real problem is my rebellious heart it is my constant foolish insistence upon doing things in my own strength and for my own glory. The problem with the universe is human sin and selfishness. Sin is the problem. And this man who was brought to Jesus, his biggest problem, I wrote this and I thought, holy, you know, just listen, this man who could not walk, his biggest problem was not that he couldn't walk, his biggest problem was that he wasn't right with God. And so Jesus breaks the ice by offering to meet his real need. Because Jesus came to deal with the real problem. And that means that he can offer us real hope. I want to say there's no real hope in health care reform or other legislation that Washington might come up with because it doesn't deal with the real problem. Can't change the human heart. There's no real hope 
in any of those things. Only Jesus can give real hope because he came and he didn't deal with the problem on a superficial level. He went right to the source. He came to save us from our sins. So look there. He says, I love how he taunts these guys who are talking to themselves. He says, which is harder? And which is? Let's ask the question. Which is harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? And for centuries, prophets had come and gone who'd healed people and raised people from the dead, but no prophet had ever claimed pardon from sin because only God can do that. And that's why they get so upset, verse 3. They start saying to themselves, this man is blaspheming. You see, they understand the implications of what Jesus is doing and they accuse him of blaspheming because what Jesus is, Jesus is claiming divinity. Jesus is, he's calling himself there in verse 6, the son of man. And if you remember, the son of man is this metaphor from Daniel chapter 7 where the great God of the universe, the ancient of days, is sitting on his throne and the son of man comes riding on the clouds of heaven and and to him is given all power and authority and dominion and a kingdom that will never end. And Jesus is saying, that guy there in Daniel 7, that's me. You sinned against me. I forgive you. And the reason he could say that according to Isaiah 53, is that on the cross he was wounded for our transgressions. This is what we read. And crushed for our iniquities. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Isaiah says that he was chastised. That he took the punishment that should have been ours. And by doing so, he did away with sin. That Jesus met our greatest need by taking on himself the guilt of our sin and dying the death that should have been ours so that we could become righteousness in him and to begin to live the life that we've been made for. That's the gospel. And here's the thing. Isaiah says that he was crushed and wounded. And because he was crushed, he can heal us. And because he was wounded, he can, through the power of his spirit, make us whole. Because he bore the guilt of sin, he can also conquer the curse of sin. And so he turns to the man, and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. See, this is why Matthew, reflecting on all the healings of Jesus there in verse uh, 17 of chapter 8, that first little paragraph up there, he says that all of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew understood that on the cross, Jesus was going to deal with sin in such a way that out of his death would flow life. That he would be crushed. And because he was crushed, he might bring healing to the world. And ultimately, out of this great saving work of Jesus Christ will come a healing that will extend not just to our hearts and our minds and our bodies, but to our relationships with one another and eventually to the whole creation. He says in Revelation 21, I am making all things new. That's worthy of an amen. You know? Now, it's interesting in this, in this passage here, of this story with the paralytic, when Jesus speaks to the man in verse 6, you'll see there he says, as he addresses him, he says, rise, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, what's fascinating about that word is it's a term that's normally used to describe the resurrection or a coming back from the dead. <laughs> Here's what that means. It means that no matter, like this man, no matter how desperate your situation might be, or no matter how weak or lifeless you may feel, no matter how diseased, You are, Jesus can bring life into your deadness. No matter how sick or diseased your marriage or your relationships might be, he can make them whole. And then, of course, ultimately this means we may still have to suffer. People we love may still get sick. Some of them may die. But the promise of the Bible is that even even if in this life we suffer, even if we experience pain and loss and grief and we mourn, 
that on the other side of death is a victory and a joy that will make whatever sadness we might experience now to be light and momentary in comparison. And the Apostle Paul, I was meditating on 1 Corinthians 15 this week, says in that, in that passage that even death has been swallowed up in victory because it is not the end. Jesus not only went to a cross to die for our sins, he rose again on the third day. And in his resurrection, there awaits for us a life that we can't possibly imagine. And, and the Bible says if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then there's a, a resurrection that awaits you too. And in Revelation 21, you get, you get this beautiful picture of what it will be like on that day. John writes of the words of Jesus, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Do you see what that is? It's Eden. It's Eden. There it is. It's Eden. That's what he's come to do. And so what that means is, and I'm running out of time, but, but before I, I, we get finished, I want to just help you see there's a bigger story. There's a story behind our lives that explains why things are the way they are and that there's a deeper need than just a simple adjustment of our circumstances. We're sinners and we need to be forgiven. But the third thing is, is and what we can learn is, all of that means there's a greater mission. There's a greater mission that Jesus has called us to out of this passage. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, churches, in my experience, really miss this in one of two ways. So on one side, there's, a church, there's the churches who understand their mission almost exclusively in terms of, of evangelism. They might have incredibly vibrant visitation programs where they go out into neighborhoods on, in the city on specific nights of the week and share their faith uh, with people and try to convert them. And I have to be honest, I really appreciate and admire people who do that because it always has scared me to death. Uh, and there are churches, so there are churches who are really strong in their commitment to evangelism, but weak. What happens is most times they become weak in their commitment to social justice, to meeting the physical needs of the poor and the weak and the vulnerable and the broken, to dealing with death. And so this is typical of most evangelical churches. For example, Jonathan interviewed David Berry, who's the, the director at the mission downtown this week, and he said out of the 100-plus churches in the city of Winter Haven, only six of them, six out of 100-plus, are actively involved in ministry at the mission. That blew my mind. But then on the other side, there are churches who understand their mission almost exclusively in terms of social justice, of really going after the brokenness and the sadness and, and the suffering of the world. They sponsor homeless shelters and soup kitchens and really seek to care for the physical needs of the poor and the weak, but never deal with sin. Never call people to repent and follow Jesus. Right? They do good things, but they don't do them explicitly in the name of Jesus. They have a really strong commitment to social justice, but a weak commitment to evangelism. So... You know, either one or the other. And typically that's mainline Protestant, you know, churches. But if we're going to seriously follow Jesus, and that's what we're trying to get into here in these chapters in Matthew, if we're going to seriously follow him, then we're going to be compelled to intentionally, aggressively, and comprehensively deal with both sin and the physical, social consequences of sin. So Jesus forgives this man's sin, but is that? But does the story end there? No, of course, he forgives his sin. And then at the end of the story, he says, take up your mat and go home. He he forgives him and he heals them. And if we're going to be faithful to the mission that he's given us, we're going to have to be actively involved in both evangelism and social justice, not just one or the other. We're going to have to share the gospel, as we say in our mission statement, in both word and deed. That's what we want to do. That's the kind of church we want to be. So let me just finish this morning by offering you a bit of advice about a couple of things from the text, just to get us down the road a little bit. So how do we deal with all the people in our lives who, like this man who comes to Jesus, are just struggling or suffering, or in great pain and sadness, what do we do? 
How do we, because the reason Ashley was crying is it's just so overwhelming. I mean, how do you even begin to attack this? And so give me two minutes and we'll go through a couple of these things. And I would say three things. First, start where you are. Start where you are. I mean, think about this man who was brought to Jesus. He could not have come on his own. He had to be carried. In other words, he had some friends who loved him enough to carry him however far it took to get to Jesus. And in the other gospel accounts, you might remember this story. These friends even climb the roof of the house where Jesus was teaching, and they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower the man down in front of Jesus. I mean, wow. What a picture of incarnation, of, 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 of intercession. And so I would just ask you, look around your life. Who has God put in your life, in the normal everyday circles you run in? Who are your neighbors, your circles of friends, your kids, your wife or your husband? Who in your life needs a friend like the friends that brought this man to Jesus? Start where you are. Secondly, invite those people into the normal rhythm of your life and community. I don't have time to get into Matthew's calling, and we're going to come back to that next week, but I just want you to see what happens when Jesus... When Jesus calls Matthew, who's sitting in a tax booth in verse 9 and then on down to verse 13, look what Matthew did. The first thing he does is he invites all of his friends, who, by the way, happen to be tax collectors and sinners. And he invites them to a dinner to meet Jesus. So when Matthew left his tax booth to follow Jesus, he left one life for another. He left one relational network for a new community of people, but he had a heart for those people. uh, For his old friends. And so what he did was he invited them to come along with him. He tried to intentionally introduced them into his new community. He took his old community and tried to introduce them to his new community. And that's what I would say. There's just an intentional invite the people in your life into the normal rhythm of your life and to the life of this church. Invite them to come and be a part of what we're doing. And then finally, I think this is really where the rubber meets the road. We have to begin to strategically build relationships with the sinful and the sick. You see down there in verse 13, Jesus says he came for sinners. He came for the sick. And so if we're going to be faithful to really engage in following this one who's come to heal the creation, to forgive sin, are you intentionally building relationships with people who don't share your belief and value system? (laughs) These are hard questions for me to answer. Are you seeking out and befriending people who don't come to church or all of your relational engagements with people who are already Christians? Let's just... Who are the most notorious sinners in our city? I came up with a list. Prisoners, prostitutes, sex offenders. I mean, do we have the courage to pursue even those people in love? Would they feel comfortable at our church? But not just the sinful, the sick. Are you intentionally building relationships with the hurting, the poor, the weak, the homeless, people whose lives are completely messed up, who are the people in our city who need the physician the most? And do we have the courage to pursue them in love? Would they feel comfortable here? Because, you see, the reality of the gospel is the gospel is for the sick, not the healthy. It's for sinners, not the righteous. So as we think of ourselves, do we consider ourselves the healthy Or do we consider ourselves the sick who need a physician? Do we consider ourselves righteous? Or do we consider ourselves those who are are desperately ruined by sin and yet need uh, someone to come and save us? See, that's, that's the call. There is a greater story that reveals a greater need. But Jesus has met that need. And now he calls us to a greater mission.
So let's pray together this morning. Father, I'm so grateful for the story in the Gospels and what it reveals to be true of our lives, that so often that the substance of my prayer life is, is all about my circumstances and how uh, to, to coerce you to make them what I want them to be. It may not be that my legs don't work. It may just be that I don't have enough money to pay the bills, or it may be that I, I'm mad at my children or whatever it might be. And I'm so thankful uh, that you are so good and so kind and so merciful And Jesus, that you were so good and kind and merciful to this man that you do not allow us to go on without bringing us to an understanding of what our real need is, and that is that our our lives are ravaged because our sin has not been dealt with. Jesus, thank you that you are the one who's come as a savior of sinners, and if we would cry out to you in faith that you promise that you've dealt with our sin upon the cross and you can forgive us, but not only that, but because you were crushed, you can turn to us no matter what our deadness or our sorrow or our sickness might be, and you could say, rise. And so many of us need to hear you say that this morning. So would you come, even as we sing this song together and reflect on all that we've heard, would you come and would you speak to many hearts in this room this morning, your sins are forgiven, rise. And would you help us, give us great wisdom to know how to engage evil in our city and how to go and deal with sin and death in a way that brings glory to you. And may you bear much fruit in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 If you are here and you, you read the part about Jesus being a savior of sinners and you're just you, that's you and you're overwhelmed with your sin, then I pray that in the benediction you would hear him speak, uh, child, your sins are forgiven. And if you're here and if you just are crushed by life, and the sadness and the sorrow and the, the sense of loss, uh, and you so desperately need, and you're sick, and you desperately need to be healed. And I pray uh, that if you, in the words of the benediction, that you would hear him say, rise. Uh, because if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then he is the one who forgives sinners, and he is the one who raises the dead. And so receive the benediction then. Listen to these words. May it, may it increase your faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.